Well, good morning. You would open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Many thanks to Brother Grant. We're also very thankful to have the Perezes back with us. Their sweet presence is always missed. I said their tan lines was not quite what we expected from Florida, but we'll work on it next time. Well, we've certainly watched with awe and wonder this week at the power God unleashes through the created order, through nature and weather. Looking at snow on the Gulf shores is a remarkable scene, isn't it? And sadly, this weather brought with it trials for many and suffering as people encountered tragedy on the roadways, even dying from exposure caused a great deal of trial and suffering for a great many people this week. You know, when these events occur, you begin to hear various worldviews come out of people. You begin to see the human desire to make sense of hardship. They want to find the right box to put it in. And unless we strive to maintain a biblical worldview, this effort to, to make sense of it all usually falls into one of five boxes. And that first faulty box for trials and tragedy and suffering is that it's always my fault. It's always my fault. This is an unbiblical perspective. While many problems in our life are caused by our choices, not everything is. The second box, and a very popular one today, is that all suffering is someone else's fault. I'm a victim. I'm oppressed. That's why I suffer because of what others are doing to me. My biggest problem is not inside of me. It's outside of me. The third view is that it's no one's fault. It's fatalism. Stuff happens, to quote the famous bumper sticker. That's fatalism. That's also unbiblical. Well, a fourth way people have of dealing with pain, not only in their own life, but in the tragedy around them, is to say it's all God's fault. They turn their anger and confusion onto him. They, in effect, make God the author of sin, which he's not, of course. And finally, some make sense of the tragedy around them by saying God's not in it at all. They have a deistic view of God and how he interacts with the world. Deism is essentially the view that God exists, but he's not directly involved with his creation. Deism pictures God as the great clockmaker who he made the clock, he wound it up and he just let it go. They look at the tragedy and say that God's not in this at all, because if he was, he would have stopped this. And as we all encounter hardships around us, as we watch the news or even experience it very personally, we're all tempted in different ways to want to jump into one of those boxes, aren't we? What is the biblical response? What is the biblical response to a 150-car pileup on the freeway in Texas that we saw this week that took young life so tragically? Well, ultimately, from a 35,000-foot view, we know that it's a result of Adam's fall. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. So if we want to boil it down, that 150-car pileup can be traced to Genesis 3, the fall of man. But those are facts. And sometimes facts are not the most comforting salve for suffering. As humans, we desire and crave meaning. We want to make sense of it. We want to know that there's an active force of intrinsic good behind it. Not merely that we're all just destined to suffer because Eve took a bite. Well, hurt, pain, sufferings, trial, tragedy, loss, they take on a completely different color 
for someone that's in Christ. We wear completely different glasses when we look at the world. We may experience all of these hardships in a lifetime, but for the believer, we know who's in the wheelhouse driving the ship. And if it be in a storm, so it is. My God is fully in command of the weather department in our lives. John Newton said, quote, I have reason to praise him for my many trials, for most probably I should have been ruined without them. When you're a believer, every trial takes on significance because it is allowed, it is controlled, it's tempered, it's dialed up and it's dialed down by a heavenly father who has one singular aim in our lives to make us more like Christ. That's the reason for it all. That's what this is all about. When we are daily transformed into the image of Christ, it is indeed for our good and it is most certainly for his glory. Amen? Amen and so be it. Well, what a time we had last Sunday. What a time we not only completed chapter 2 in our journey through Mark, but we began our two-part series titled Saving the Sabbath. Recall that two observances above all define Jews and set them apart from other nations. Circumcision and the Sabbath. The observances, the rituals, and the rites of the Sabbath were the most consuming part of a normal Jew's week. And we did a bit of a deep dive last week into what these rules and regulations fashioned over the years by the religious elite looked like. We saw laughable examples such as being able to not being able to move any furniture or chairs in your house, lest it make a, a, a rut in the dirt floor, constituting plowing, picking up nothing heavier than a dried fig, hundreds of rules and regulations that were a source of pride for the Pharisees and a source of pain for the people. The blessing that Sabbath was meant to be for people had been perverted. It had been stacked high with burdens that originated nowhere in the Old Testament, nowhere in the law of God. This was a source of control for the religious elite, a place to not only keep the people under their thumb, but to feed their pride. They kept the external laws on the outside, but inside they were whitewashed tombs. They were broods of vipers. They were missing the entire meaning and God's intent. Last week, they approached Jesus and his disciples in the wheat field with a food violation. Five food violations, to be precise, which we detailed. But Jesus' response to them was, as always, calamitous for them. In one sentence, Jesus not only claims lordship over this entire day they feel they controlled, but in fact says, I'm Lord over it all. I am Lord of the Sabbath. I am God. One greater than the temple is here. Matthew records Jesus saying, this would have enraged the Pharisees, enraged them. Yet we've only just begun to see this play out. Beginning with our text this morning, Mark 3, 1 through 6. He entered again into a synagogue and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. 
Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We see so much revealed of both your heart and the fallen hearts of men here. We pray that this message would break through the calluses that are constantly building up in our lives and we know our lives as Christians and as disciples are a daily one because we continually desire to return to our old man. Let this message warn us anew and soften us afresh. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Buzz Aldrin is a name I think everyone in here is familiar with. He needs no introduction, really. Piloting Apollo 11 to the moon landing is pretty much the ultimate accomplishment for any pilot or astronaut. Where does one go beyond that, right? What's next? And you might say to yourself, what do you mean, what's next? What more do you want? Well, if anyone's known a type A person like almost all astronauts and pilots are, you'll understand the drive of these individuals. More than almost any profession, many astronauts' identity are completely tied to what they do, to what they've accomplished, to what they know. All of their happiness, their worth, their identity, their value are connected to that identity. Well, soon after Buzz Aldrin returned from the moon, he was a very angry man. He drank heavily. He later even publicly punched a guy. By his own admission, he was depressed and dissatisfied with life, and this came out in anger. Why? Someone so successful, why the anger? You see, the moment his craft came splashing back down to Earth from Apollo 11, the mission was over. As he later said, quote, though he wanted to return back to mission status, there was no mission to return to. Buzz Aldrin had lost his identity. This not only made him depressed, this made him angry. Well, today we're going to see angry Pharisees. You see, Jesus did not just trample on their errant theology concerning the Sabbath. He trampled their identity. He trampled their pride. These were the astronauts of theology. And Jesus just ended their mission. If what this man Jesus is saying is true, they have no identity. Jesus has trampled our, plot, our pride and he's taken our identity. And identity is everything. Even as believers, except now our identity is in Christ. This is what is brewing in the hearts of the Pharisees as we look to our scene beginning here in verse 1. Mark 3, verse 1. He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. Well, for some context, if we look at these two events in all three of the synoptic gospels, meaning Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of them connect our scene last week in the wheat field and this scene today in the synagogue. All three of them connect these two events. Because of that, it's possible and it's even likely that these events happen in sequential Sabbaths. In fact, some even suggest that this may have been later in the day on the same Sabbath. Well, Lanesville 2021, why do you care about that? Well, because this makes this a bit of a one-two punch for the Pharisees. It helps explain their anger, right? One Sabbath after another. Where do we find Jesus here? Where should you be on a Sabbath? In church. Jesus was in church. Let's not miss that. He was in his father's house where we are joyfully commanded to be. And Luke's account of this event says that Jesus was teaching in this synagogue as this event is about to unfold. 
Well, it kind of makes me wonder which synagogue this was that Jesus was in at this point. Because at this point, he's got a reputation as a blasphemer, someone who dines with tax collectors and sinners, as an apostate of religious customs and a breaker of the Sabbath. Makes me wonder what synagogue let Jesus in the door. Ah, but no man spake like this man. Who is this that speaks with such power and authority? The leadership may have been against Jesus at this point, but the people likely could not get enough. So back to our text, who do we see here? And a man was there whose hand was withered. We need to rotate our diamond a bit here. Look over to Luke, who recalls, who recall was a doctor. He was a physician by trade, and he gives us a bit more detail. Luke tells us that this it was this man's right hand. Why do you care about that? Most people are right-handed. If you're right-handed, how much worse would it be to lose your right hand? This was likely a life-impacting issue for this man. His ability to work was likely zero. In fact, some traditions outside of Scripture label this man as a beggar. Either way, Luke is telling us that this was not merely an inconvenience for this man. This was life-altering. I think we need to get that. His hand was withered. This word means it was shriveled, it was deformed, it was dried, it was probably pulled back in on itself. It was a worthless limb. Meaning any healing of this kind is a creative miracle. The creative force only possessed by God. That that created the world in Genesis 1. That force would be required to remake this hand. What transpires next boggles the mind in verse 2. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And we need to dissect this, but start with a surface observation. Jesus has not yet called this man forward. Jesus has not highlighted this man. So why, oh why, would they already have been watching to see if Jesus would heal him without Jesus having never acknowledged this man yet? Out of all the people there, in fact, if his hand was withered, he likely would keep it covered, not on display. We only have two options. And both betray a sinister heart. The first option shared by many theologians is that the Pharisees actually planted this man to get Jesus to break their Sabbath. And I have to admit, had I read these opinions in isolation of what we've already learned, I may have scoffed. But knowing what we already know about these men now, it seems entirely in the realm of possibility that they indeed planted this man. The second option, and it's hardly better, was that they entered the synagogue looking carefully for anyone who needed obvious healing and watched that person. This seems a bit less likely to me, which leaves us with the setup theory. That's remarkable, isn't it? That's remarkable. It's wicked is what it is. Verse 2 shows us in high definition what legalism does to the mind, how it calluses the heart, how it drains the life, how it brings death. Death of joy, death of spirit, and ultimately separation from Christ, who is the opposite of a legalist, resulting in everlasting death. So what were they looking for? To see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Well, what's wrong with healing on the Sabbath? If you look at the Old Testament, nothing. But we're not going by the Old Testament, are we? We're going by, we're going with mounds and mounds of man-made tradition, fine-tuned and tweaked and refined over the years in the Talmud and the Mishnah, chapter upon chapter. 
Yet to go even further, do these issues, do these writings actually address the issue of healing? No, they don't. Why? Because most people can't heal another person, right? We're not going to write laws in the event that a prophet or the Messiah happens to come back and wants to perform a healing on the Sabbath. We're just not going to write laws to address those things. So healing is not even mentioned. Making Jesus coming supposed infraction two layers removed from breaking their sacred rules. The only exception written in these laws concerning medical care was that which was required to save a life. Oh, and women, you will be happy to hear that childbirth was also allowed if you must. But was a withered hand a deadly threat? No. Yet remarkably, inwardly, they want Jesus to break their law. So do they actually even love this law that they purport to serve? No. If you want someone to break a law that you might catch them, do you even love that law? No. If you love a law, you desire that it be kept. They didn't care that the law was kept. They wanted a scalp. Legalism. And can we even bring ourselves here to look beyond the lack of compassion? This man suffered. He could not work to anything near full capacity. He would have lived in poverty. He did not have use of both hands. He would have lived in poverty. And they would have him languish for their law. And the irony here being that the actual law of God, what is in force, what is true and real, does address those things. Dealing with the poor, bringing comfort and compassion. These are part of how the Old Testament exhorts us to act towards others. So we can't even say that they're tripping over dimes to pick up pennies here because these aren't even pennies. This is a apostate religion. This is not God's law. Sabbath was made to be a blessing to his people. Sabbath was made to bring restoration to weary believers. It was to give times of refreshing in the presence of the Lord in worship. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And why were they watching to see if he would heal him? Last part of verse two. So that they might accuse him. If there's one thing you'll learn in ministry, it's that some people love doing the devil's job for him. What does Revelation call Satan? Revelation 12.10 Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of, the God, of God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down. The one who accuses them before our God day and night. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Katagoras, same word in Mark 3, the accuser. I don't think Mark intends to make that connection here, but nevertheless, it is there. And this is a moment where we stop and reflect on that. How often are we doing the devil's work for him? Do we bring slander or accusation toward others? And we should walk with all kindness and humility toward one another, admonishing others with praise and encouragement, and yes, even correction, especially to those within the household of faith. The devil does not need any help. When we take on the heart of a Pharisee, we do his bidding. Satan was not needed in this synagogue today. His services were not required. The Pharisees had it all in hand. What comes next actually closely resembles some other encounters with the Pharisees we've seen. Verse three. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. 
Now, let's first recognize that much more is happening here that is unspoken than what is spoken. Jesus knows the thoughts and intentions of these men, doesn't he? What do we do with that? Well, Jesus Christ knows the heart of every man, every thought, every motive. If this week, every thought we had were loaded onto a hard drive and put up on the screen for all the church to watch, it may not go well with our soul. Jesus knows each of these thoughts. And in that knowledge for us is wrapped up the incredible tenderness of his mercy. He knows your thoughts now. He knows what thoughts we had this week. But guess what? He knew every single thought you were going to have when he saved you. And he still saved you. Glory to God. Charles Spurgeon wrote, quote, I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he would never have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. End quote. God knew every sin we would commit and still saved us. He knew every foul thought like that of the Pharisees here, and he still saved us. The awareness of the foulness of our own thoughts presses us into our Savior. It causes us to rejoice in such a Savior. The next time a foul thought comes into your mind this week, put it away and then think, what a savior and love him even more. He knew I would have that thought and he saved me anyway. He thought he saw that thought from eternity past and he saved you anyway. Glory to God. Just like us, Jesus sees the trap as if it we're up on a screen. He calls the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. Interesting, isn't that? Interesting. Up to this point in Mark's gospel, it's usually the sick and the hurting that are coming to him. And now he calls this man up to the front for all to see. Jesus is taking their private evil and he's about to make a public spectacle of it. The foolishness that would have kept this man suffering another day in their legalism was to be openly shamed for all to see. We need to quickly see Matthew's account here to know that it was actually the Pharisees after Jesus calls up this man who initiate the the question. They initiate the conversation. Matthew 12, verse 10. And they, meaning the Pharisees, question Jesus asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Well, let's first see the context of how they first asked the question. How they first asked the question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? I don't know how many of you can bear watching the news anymore, but if you watch pundits or guests, especially politicians, when asked a question, they spin it, don't they? I remember Bill O'Reilly's show, right? It used to be called the No Spin Zone. The host will ask a question, and the guest will answer a completely different question, or they'll remake the question. Ever notice that? Well, we have the same battle of wits happening here with Jesus and the Pharisees. Unfortunately, the Pharisees are radically outclassed. The Pharisees' question is, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus responds in Mark's recording with his own question, verse 4. Mark 3, verse 4. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. So they ask, is it lawful to heal? Jesus spins it and says, is it lawful to do good? Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? 
to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill. This is what we'll call vintage Jesus. It reminds me of Jesus' response to them when asking if John the Baptist's John the Baptist's baptism was of God or of man. It's genius, right? Same here. Matthew's account shows Jesus using a common rabbinical form of argument from the lesser to the greater. Matthew records Jesus talking about sheep. Sheep being allowed to be saved and helped out of a ditch on the Sabbath, but not a human. This makes no sense. And Pharisees are not going to argue that point. They know we're made imago Dei. We are made in the image of God. We're the, we are more important than sheep. So then is it, it is not Jesus who is breaking the law. It's you. The law would tell the people that you are to do good to those around you and not to cause them harm. That's the law. Yet your very rules and regulations bring harm. You're a walking contradiction. You'll save an animal, but you'll leave a person to suffer. Does that sound like any other worldview we see today? Save the whales, kill the babies? Makes no sense. The valuing of life is wrong. If you say we can pull out a sheep, I can help a human being. And so Jesus does. Verse 5. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. There's so much that we need to see here. In truth, this verse could be a sermon all unto itself. And I was tempted. I was very tempted. As Jesus looks around at them, he sees what is unspoken. He sees their heart and Jesus responds with what? With anger. With anger, we have to stop there and examine this facet of God. Does God get angry? Yes. We see demonstrated in Scripture, God the Father and God the Son expressing anger. And of course, the Trinity is in perfect unity with one another, so we can say with confidence that the Godhead has anger. It's not a common topic and not one that you'll find preached in many pulpits today, yet it is pivotal to understanding the attributes of God. His anger is not just a byproduct attribute. It is a most necessary and a primary attribute as much as his love and as much as his perfection. Alistair Begg writes, quote, it is because God's wrath is real that his mercy is relevant. Unless you have a real wrath and a real anger, the biblical concepts of long suffering, of mercy and of grace are robbed of their meaning, end quote. One requires the other. Without the presence of God's wrath, what value is his mercy? Without the presence of God's anger, who cares about mercy and grace? The Bible says that God is angry with the wicked every day. Many would love to sidestep this attribute of God, but here it is. But saints, the good news is that his anger is not like our anger. This is a common misunderstanding and we need to grab hold of this. It's been said that God created man in his image and man has been returning the favor ever since. Meaning we love to impose human conditions and human emotions onto God as if he has them the same way that we do. But he doesn't. This is especially true when it comes to anger. Some have the impression that the only difference between our anger and God's anger is the purity of motive or the intention. That's also errant. We know that God is both unchanging and unchangeable. 
God does not change. His moods do not sway and shift. Now, the fancy theological word for those wanting extra credit this morning is God's impassibility. Does that mean that God is like two semi-trucks blocking you on the freeway? No. (laughs) God's impassibility means that God does not experience emotional change in any way. Nothing can be added to or subtracted from God's emotions, and that includes his moods. If you read through various confessions like the Westminster and the Belgic confessions, you'll see they define God as, quote, without passions, without passions. God can never become something he is not at this very moment. If he did, our unchanging God just did what? Changed. When you or I become angry, saints, something happens. A change happens inside of us. Something that was not there before is now there. Not so with God. All of God's attributes, his love, his holiness, his anger, his goodness, his justice, all reside in him at once, just as they are. They are fully active at the same time. Unlike our emotions, God's emotions do not come and go like the tide. His anger is as steady and as perfect as his love. Our anger is often irrational. His is not. When we become angry, we change. Something is there that was not there before. God's is always there. And this is very good news. If we understand God's anger rightly, we don't need to shy away from it or lament that it exists. People shy away from it because they think that God's anger is like ours. But thankfully, it's not. It's a perfect anger. It's pure. So we who knew that we can actually rejoice in God's anger? And yet it's just another perfect attribute of God, the same as his love. In our text, Jesus in human form expresses these emotions perfectly. Remember that it's not only Jesus' death that's imputed to us. It is also his perfect life as well. It's every perfect response that Jesus gives throughout his life imputed to us, given to us. How should we how we should have responded in our emotions? When we yelled at our spouse or our kids. Jesus did it perfectly. And we see that here back in our text. It says Jesus was angry. But this is not ordinary anger. This was not annoyance or being perturbed. This was not even just straight up anger. The word here is orge. That means Jesus was furious. He was furious. And if we miss this, we miss the true response to this wickedness by the Pharisees. The word Mark uses for anger here is translated 34 other times in the New Testament as wrath. A few examples, rapid fire here. Who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Same word. For there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. But the wrath of God abides on him. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. This is the word. So we see 
Jesus looks at the heart here in our text and is righteously furious. You can hear the heart of God towards this type of wickedness in the prophet Isaiah. Straight away in chapter 1, starting at verse 11, we will put words to the fury that Jesus is feeling right here. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals festivals, and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Jesus is furious at the wickedness brought right into his father's house. And if the Pharisees did indeed plant this man, it is a foul trap indeed. Back to our text. Grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. The greatest hindrance to experiencing divine love, forgiveness, restoration is not opposition. It's not persecution. The greatest roadblock to the bosom of Christ is hardness of heart. Jesus performs a creative miracle here for all to see. Yet, oh, the power of the hardened heart. Many with lost friends and relatives believe that if they relay enough information or have the best apologetic or if God would do something miraculous in their life or or bring about a tragedy in their life, that surely that would bring them around. Now, if a heart is of stone, Jesus Christ himself could stand in front of them, perform a creative miracle, and they would not believe. Such is our fallen depravity. They ask if Jesus is who he says he is, if he, why doesn't he just appear in the sky for all to see? Say, I'm Jesus, believe in me, and be done with it. Then we would all believe. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. First, you need a new heart. This gives a whole new meaning and impact when God tells us that at the moment of conversion, he will remove our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, doesn't it? Exposure to the gospel, exposure to the power of Christ in someone's life will turn all of those around you into eggs or potatoes. The boiling heat of the word in your life is either going to soften that potato or it's going to harden that egg. Every person in your life as a Christian is a potato or an egg. They should either be softening toward you or hardening toward you. If you have known them for 10 years and they're doing neither, they're not getting harder or softer, you better check the temperature of your own water. As we come upon verse 6, the Pharisees' exposure to the power of Christ has once again truly hard-boiled their egg. Okay, the heart is so hard now, let's see what happens. Verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Well, the language here intimates that 
if it were possible, if it were not, if it were allowed by Roman law and the people would not have risen in protest, their embarrassment and rage against Jesus was such they would have killed him right then and there. We spoke a few weeks ago about strange bedfellows that are willing to come together for the common cause of attacking the church. Well, here in verse six, we see strange partners indeed, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Suffice to say, these two groups did not care for each other in the least. But this tells us something of the breadth, how wide the attack was coming against Jesus. You see, the Pharisees, of course, represented the religious front of the attack. The Herodians were the political one. The inclusion of the Herodians tells us that Jesus not only has a religious problem here, he has a political problem as well. And what a surprise to find the religious establishment and the politicians together plotting to attack the Messiah. As they say, there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new. We will not see the Pharisees again now for 14 verses. I'm sorry. I know we'll miss them. It seems like an eternity at this point, but have no fear. They will be back. Jesus' compassion toward the man with the withered hand would not be without consequence. Wouldn't be without consequence. Of all Jesus' infractions up to this point, this pushed them over the edge, putting us well and truly on the road to Calvary, where our suffering servant, Jesus Christ, will be put on a cross as an innocent man. His compassion he had for this man today, that he had for the crowds and the leper in chapter 1, the paralytic and the tax collectors in chapter 2, that compassion would carry him all the way up that hill. A perfect sacrifice, Lamb of God, slain for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you to thank you once again for all of your attributes. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy, for your compassion, for your holiness, for your justice. And yes, Lord, we thank you for your anger. We thank you for your anger. We have so much to learn in that attribute. Heavenly Father, you have done all things well. You have brought us together in your perfect sovereignty. We ask, Lord, that you would keep us this week. Cause us to meditate on this word that we have learned, that we might know you more. In Jesus' name, amen.